This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. A year ago last Friday, whatever microscopic shred of credibility and, frankly, sanity that Donald Trump or his supporters could claim the former president possessed went flying out the window when he stood before the American people and recommended the following steps be taken to fight the COVID-19 virus. A question that probably some of you are thinking of if you're totally into that world, which I find to be very interesting. So, supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light, and I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. We'll right, folks right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number in the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that so that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds it sounds interesting to me. So we'll see. But the whole concept of the light, the way it kills it in one minute, that's uh, that's pretty powerful. Trump later claimed he was being sarcastic, despite the fact that he made the remarks during a nationally televised news conference in the middle of a pandemic. However, his comments were followed by a rise in accidental poisonings involving disinfectants such as bleach. Something Dr. Anthony Fauci, who was not at the news conference, later admitted he was worried would happen. Now, when he gets new information, he likes to talk that through out loud um, and really have that dialogue. And so that's what dialogue he was having. I think he just saw the information at the time, um, immediately before the press conference, and he was still digesting that information. In a CNN interview recorded in January, Fauci remembered the incident painfully. I just said, oh, my goodness gracious, I could just see what's going to happen. You're going to have people who hear that from the president are going to start doing dangerous and foolish things, which is the reason why immediately those of us who were not there uh, said this is something you should not do. Be very explicit. The CDC came out, I think, the next day and put in one of their publications. Do not do this. Trump, of course, denied all responsibility, which was and continues to be his M.O. Now, I was asking a question sarcastically to reporters like you just to see what would happen. Now, disinfectant for doing this, maybe on the hands, would work. And I was asking the question of the gentleman who was there yesterday, Bill. But I was asking a sarcastic and a very sarcastic question to the reporters in the room about disinfectant on the inside. But it does kill it, and it would kill it on the hands, and that would make things much better. Governor Larry Hogan specifically said they've seen a spike in people uh, using disinfectant after your comments last week. I know you said they were sarcastic. I I can't imagine why. I can't imagine why. Yeah. Take any responsibility? No, I don't. No, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that. The makers of Lysol had to warn that under no circumstances should our disinfectant products be administered into the human body through injection, ingestion, or any other route. It is not advised and can be deadly. In the past two days, there's been a significant increase in calls to the Illinois Poison Center compared to this same time last year, associated with exposures to cleaning agents. 
Health officials in Illinois say the calls included people using detergent as sinus rinse and gargling with bleach and mouthwash in an attempt to kill the coronavirus. It was a watershed moment for the undoing of Donald Trump. His seeming invincibility as a candidate was punctured by the evidence for all to see that the man was a malignant tumor of a human being and a fucking moron to boot. Instead of listening to scientists and experts on the best way to fight the disease, Trump leaned into conspiracy theories and miracle cures. Hello, I'm Dr. Clean. Are you worried about shower mildew, but also the coronavirus? Then pick up me, Dr. Clean, today. I work on all surfaces, countertops, porcelain tubs, internal organs, everything. Now both your bathroom and insides will be spotless and have a fresh lemon scent. Does it work? That depends on who you ask and whether or not they understand science. But don't take it from me. Take it from this jingle. Dr. Clean gets stuff on viruses and does it in a minute. Dr. Clean will clean your body and every organ in it. He looked at the viruses, not something to be combated for the sake of humanity, but something that was happening to him and his presidency. If he couldn't make it go away, maybe he could just make people not care about it so much. Well, sorry, pal. 600,000 people are dead, largely because of your inaction. All you had to do is care and listen to the scientists and not say crazy, batshit, stupid things that would scare people. But that's not Donald Trump. That's the other guy. They're going to be This is the same man it's who all told set you up. by Easter this had be gone away. By the warm weather, it'd be gone. Miraculous, like a miracle. And by the way, maybe you could inject some bleach in your arm, and that would take care of it. This is the that same man. That was said sarcastically, that was you seem, know that. I, that I, was said sarcastically. And so here's the deal. On Friday, everyone from George Conway to Jimmy Kimmel remembered Disinfectant Gate, marking the one-year anniversary of the day Trump fully lost his fucking mind, or at least made those who were still on the fence run away in fear from the former president as a madman. So these two reporters wrote this book, and they said, I want to moat with alligator snakes, electrified fences, so people get electrocuted if they so much as touch the fence, and spikes on top. Never said it, never thought of it, and I actually put out something on social media today. I said, I'm tough on the border, but I'm not that tough. Okay, it was a lie. What's crazy about that moment, though, is how completely in character it now seems for Donald Trump. Keep in mind, this time one year ago, Trump had not yet tried to overturn the election and plant the big lie that our election was rigged and stolen. We just knew what he saw. He was a man that was unhinged at best, grasping at straws and leaning into conspiracy theories to advocate unproven and dangerous remedies that ultimately injured and killed scores of his followers who badly wanted to believe that they could cure themselves. Six months later, he would be encouraging many of these same people with a different kind of poison to storm the Capitol building and prevent Congress from certifying the election for his opponent, Joseph R. Biden. Only the second time it wasn't so funny. The poison was not bleach or Lysol, but the poison of conspiracy and fake news that Trump and the conservative media that served him created on an industrial scale to push the big lie of election fraud. MAGA followers injected these lies into themselves willingly and without pause. After all, Donald Trump had grown in their minds into some kind of Christ figure. 
It all seemed too absurd to believe until we watched the Capitol convulse with riots from these imbeciles who had poisoned themselves with rhetoric and lies. And now, one year removed from the moment of insanity, we remember that day with a cold shiver. The fact is, Trump isn't completely gone. He remains the de facto leader of the GOP. Through everything that happened, this might be the greater insanity. That people, despite all they know and all that they've seen, still want more Donald Trump. And this includes his fellow GOP party members who seem inclined to keep kissing the Donald's ass despite all the abuse he's doled out and all the damage he's done to the party. How's it going, CPAC? Or I heard someone earlier phrase it a little bit better. TPAC. The Republican Party is being reborn thanks to President Trump. The party of America first. The party of President Trump. President Trump did something that has never been done in our lifetime. He stood up to all of establishment Washington and said no. They want him to go away. Let me tell you this right now. Donald J. Trump ain't going anywhere. Let's take another stroll down memory lane. This time from the past few months. After losing his re-election, Trump's effort to overturn that free and fair election earned him a second impeachment. Along the way, Trump meddled in the state of Georgia, sabotaging not one, but two U.S. Senate runoff races that almost single-handedly costing Republicans control of the Senate in the process. The very next day, he incited an insurrection in the U.S. Capitol where, among other things, rioters beat cops with an American flag. And the response from Republican was, we love you, Donald. Donald Trump is under fire for conning over $100 million from his most loyal supporters. The New York Times busting his re-election campaign for a scheme mixing some of Trump's oldest con artist tricks with the desperation in a general election where he was clearly trailing Biden in the polls and in the money race. Now, this story matters for several reasons. Sure, there's the blatant hypocrisy and ethics of conning your most fervent supporters. But there's also the ongoing heat on Donald Trump's re-election effort, which ranges from those cheating allegations under criminal investigation in Georgia to the insurrection that has now opened civil suits against Trump, including by police officers, to this scheme, which shows how Trump tried to make up his deficit in funding by tricking his own supporters who thought they were donating once to then be suckered into donations that were double, triple, or over five times the original. And if you don't understand how completely Trump has maintained this iron grip over the GOP, let's start with the fact that, as sleazy Trump spokesman Jason Miller recently told the Washington Post, Mar-a-Lago and Palm Beach are the center of the Republican universe right now. It's sad, but very, very true. The conservative political action conference was in Florida less than two months ago where Trump basically told the world that he wasn't going anywhere. And just last weekend, the Republicans converged there for their winter meeting while Trump attacked Mike Pence for not having the courage to support his coup and called Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell a dumb son of a bitch. Don't you understand, you dumb son of a bitch? The GOP is willing to maintain their fealty to Trump only because of how dedicated the grassroots of the party remain to the MAGA cause. They have succeeded in their quest to inject Trumpism into the local electorate and have turned Trump's lies and conspiracies into legislation. 
What else is the recent voter safety bill in Georgia but a response to Trump's bullshit about stolen ballots? The same with these ridiculous anti-protest laws enacted in Florida by many Trump Ron DeSantis who has continued the Trump narrative about marauding members of Antifa coming to burn down Boca Raton. Just last week, he went on Fox News to support Laura Ingram's assertion that Black Lives Matter basically forced the jury into a guilty verdict by threatening widespread riots. So I'm kind of more worried about the rest of the country, which, thanks to police inaction, in case you haven't noticed, is like boarded up. <laughs> if all politics are local, then we are still very much in the age of Trump. His winter White House may not control things on the federal level, but locally, especially in the MAGA strongholds of Florida, Oklahoma, Iowa, and elsewhere, Trumpism is even more ingrained than it was four years ago. Not to mention the fact that we now must deal with the new generation of Trump-inspired elected figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and Matt Gates. Without Trump to pave the way for their toxic behavior, they would just not fucking exist. And more are on the way. So again, my plea that none of this will stop until Trump himself sits behind bars. His pull is just simply too great. Oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but the... And now for the main event. Trumpism will not simply die out because we want it to end. It will take an organized effort to not only bring Trump himself to justice, but to reign in the sprawling cancer that has metastasized across the political spectrum based on Trump's influence. One of the main fighters in his campaign for accountability is my next guest on Mea Culpa, Richard Painter. The former George W. Bush White House ethics czar, Painter is today the vice chairman of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington and a professor of corporate law at the University of Minnesota. Under Painter's leadership, Crew aggressively pursued Trump for leading the most unethical presidency in modern times and possibly in the nation's history. Through 180 separate lawsuits and Freedom of Information Act requests, they were able to shed much-needed light into the dark and dirty machinery of the Trump administration. Even with Trump out of office, the work continues. Crew most recently sued the DOJ for its meeting records between Blackwater founder and husband of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, Eric Prince, and former Attorney General Bill Barr, who was suspected of granting Prince an extraordinary amount of legal leeway in his dealings. Crew smells corruption and intends to bring these figures to justice. It's all part of a small but concerted effort by folks like Painter and Norm Eisen to make sure that none of this happens again. Painter joined me on Mea Culpa during those tense days following the killing of Dante Wright as National Guard troops occupied the University of Minnesota. Painter is painfully aware of what can happen next. It's in this swirl of politics, corruption, race and violence that Painter and I talk. So let's listen now to that conversation. Yesterday, we learned of the death of Bernie Madoff, 
Now, you were quoted in the piece discussing how Madoff was able to pull off his scams by saying con artists like Madoff use affinity fraud to take advantage of uh, homogeneity um, and groupthink on corporate and nonprofit boards. Among other defects, an all-white, all-male boardroom can be a sitting duck. Can you discuss this with me and my listeners? What did you mean? Well, affinity fraud is where someone who is uh, trying to deceive other people uh, takes advantage of the fact that those people are very similar to himself, whether it's a similar religion or ethnic background or political perspective. And uh, Bernie Madoff is one of the two most infamous uh, con artists in New York City in recent memory. The other one, as you know, is still at large in Palm Beach, Florida. And uh, Donald Trump himself used affinity fraud to appeal to his supporters who have sent in uh, millions of dollars to uh, defend uh, President Trump in the election and to try and reverse the results of the election and the money still flowing in. Bernie Madoff took advantage of a very different affinity group in the Jewish community, those who believed uh, that he, because he uh, shared the religious views and perspective, that he would never uh, be a fraud artist who would try and con them out of their money. Uh, this is a very old phenomenon. Uh, we saw it decades ago in New York City when the WASP community, where the president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, uh, in the 1930s, uh, stole money from the New York Yacht Club, from the pension fund of the New York Stock Exchange, from the St. Paul School Endowment Fund. I mean, he was, and his own clients, uh, using affinity fraud. We see it in the Mormon community. In Utah, we see it in the evangelical community. Uh, and so Bernie Madoff was reflective of a phenomenon in American culture where people trust uh, someone simply because they think that person believes what they do, whether it's about God or whether it is political beliefs, as Donald Trump himself takes advantage of people using that mantra. It's a very, very treacherous road. Uh, as we saw with Bernie Madoff, billions of dollars lost. And with President Trump, I believe our democracy, not just money at stake, because of this notion of affinity fraud. Well, it's interesting because you turn around and you make reference to Bernie Madoff in terms of taking advantage of the Jewish community. Yes, there were quite a few individuals that were investors with Madoff's um, company that were of the Jewish you know, persuasion there. But I really don't believe that it was the bulk of Madoff's big money people. Much of his money were actually the white Anglo-Saxons, uh, including, actually, I think his uh, homogeneity would really be the rich community. I mean, the people were putting in minimum, you had to have $25 million, I believe, in order to be a customer or a client of Madoff. And instead, what they had is they had other companies that then were grouping individuals together who didn't have the 25 million and they would go out they would put a whole group of them together and then bring it to Madoff so that they were then uh, I think there was one company out in Connecticut uh, that was doing it but Madoff really sort of transcended that whole notion of Jewish of Jewish culture he just went after the big money people well Madoff 
also operated in the high society, which, of course, has people of all different uh, religious persuasions these days. It used to be predominantly white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. But he, were, he certainly appealed uh, to the very, very rich uh, by saying, OK, if you're very rich and privileged, you get to invest with me. Uh, and there was definitely that component uh, uh, with Bernie Madoff. Uh, but with the charities, I mean, I know many uh, friends of mine in the, in the Jewish community who worked with charities who trusted him because they believed that he shared their view of, of, of faith. And I understand that. But he did not adhere to the Jewish faith. He lied. He was a liar. He was a thief. And many wonderful people who simply could not believe that this man could do that to them. They trusted him on faith. And I, I believe that, you know, if you look at the, the charities uh, that, were, uh, that, that were victims uh, of this, uh, an awful lot of this disproportionate impact on the Jewish community is very tragic, given the, the number of people, including uh, people I've known who invested with him, who escaped Germany in the 1930s who believed that no one could ever do this uh, to uh, uh, someone who shared the religious faith. So I do think, I think we cannot minimize, and we see this with Trump, his invoking the evangelical uh, persuasion, even though he was never a man who went to church, and invoking uh, the name of God uh, to deceive people uh, from their money. Uh, it, it's, a, um, it, it's a pernicious thing. And uh, we saw that with, with, with uh, Madoff. But uh, yes, there were many people who were not Jewish who simply looked at this is a man who must do good works. This is a man who is involved with his faith. I must trust him. And yet he was a liar. Yeah, well, I mean, does it make it? Is there anything different than Donald Trump getting and clearing out the entire street so that he can stand in front of a church there in Washington holding up the Bible as if he is really a man of faith? Because one thing we certainly know is that Donald Trump has never gone to church in his life. Donald Trump going over there to St. John's Episcopal Church without the permission of the bishop, sending before he went over there, having Bill Barr sending federal troops and police officers to remove peaceful protesters including priests of all faiths who are praying outside that church, those who supported Black Lives Matter, violently removed simply so Donald Trump could walk across the park, hold the Bible upside down, and profess the Christian faith in front of that church. That is exactly what I'm talking about, that people could believe that that's a man of God, a man who had lived his entire life contrary to the principles not only of the Christian faith, but of every other faith. When you look at his personal life, at the way he treated uh, his investors and his employees, and then in the White House, the way he treated immigrants at the border, children in cages, the list goes on and on. And yet people would believe if he simply said, I'm a Christian and I'm here to defend Christianity against Who's the enemy? Whatever the enemy is, Antifa, whoever he wants to, Muslims, I mean, whoever the enemy is supposed to be. I'm supposed to identify with this man. That was the message he was sending. And it's a very dangerous message. 
And yet the evangelical community came out in droves in order to support him. Now, I'm kind of responsible for that because the initial um, supporter of Donald Trump was, of course, Jerry Falwell Jr., who is somebody that I remain close to to this day. And I had asked Jerry uh, and Becky Falwell, his wife, to please go to Iowa in order to stump for Trump because he was doing so poorly there. And I didn't want to see him get destroyed in the press because I know his fragile ego. And I didn't ever expect that he was going to win the nomination, let alone the presidency, even though I believed he could do it if he would change. But somewhere along the line, even from the very first day of the announcement of his campaign, which was to attack Mexicans, there was always somebody that he had to attack. And yet somehow or another, we managed to pull it off. Hey, everybody. My eyesight is pretty rough these days. Some of it's simply because I'm getting older. But there's also the fact that I spent decades reading legal documents with tiny print. And then there's the hours I spent um, inside prison reading in very low light. And nothing destroys your eyes faster than squinting at a paperback for six hours in a darkened cell. And now with my podcast, my new book, and even more documents to read, I get headaches, eye strain, and crazy migraines like you wouldn't believe. Recently, though, a friend introduced me to Blue Blocks. After trying several pairs, I settled on their summer glow blue light glasses. There's no magic. I simply put them on during the day when working with screens or under artificial light. I tried just about everything before I got a pair of these bad boys, including a couple of expensive prescription frames that seemed to just make matters worse. Blue Blocks just work better. Here's some of the finer points about Blue Blocks. They're made in optics laboratories in Australia, not mass-produced in factories in Asia. The frames are super stylish that and have been featured in Vogue. They're constructed with science-backed technology, tested to ensure they work, unlike other blue light glass companies. They're a little more expensive than other brands, but they're worth every penny just to have gotten rid of those migraines. Besides, you get what you pay for. After getting my Summer Glow blue light glasses from Blue Blocks, I felt immediate relief, not just from digital eye strain, but my migraines and my headaches lessened as well. Plus, the cool yellow lenses make me look, well, like a rock star. Glasses come in non-prescription, prescription and reading options. Blue Blocks has glasses for every need. Blue light for helping digital eye strain. Summer Glow for helping with low mood and migraines. And Sleep Plus for improving your sleep. Blue Blocks also has other amazing products, such as low blue light bulbs, red light therapy devices, and 100% blackout sleep masks, all backed by science. Blue Blocks ship worldwide in rapid time. Easy returns and exchanges. So go to blueblocks.com slash Cohen and use coupon code Cohen to save 15% on your order. That's blueblocks.com slash Cohen and use coupon code Cohen to save 15%. But I want to say, you know, um, Richard, because you were the White House ethics lawyer under George W. Bush from what was that, 2005 to 2007. I'm always in amazement when I take a look at some of these titles and some of the things that you had to do under the administration. 
Was there anybody that you had to deal with as the White House ethics czar, so to speak, under the George W. Bush administration that comes even remotely close to any of the Trump administration folks, specifically like a Bill Barr? What would you have done if, in fact, that you were still the ethics czar there and you had to deal with a Bill Barr or a Jared Kushner or an Ivanka Trump? or a Steve Bannon or a Steve Miller? What would you have done? What could you have done? Uh, I probably would have had to walk out of the White House dealing with people like that. There were certain things that went wrong in the Bush administration, the torture program uh, that I was not even given a security clearance for my first year uh, so on the job, and uh, that's information that they were not going to share with me. I did the work on financial conflicts of interest, but I certainly would not apologize for the torture program, which never should have been conducted. It was a violation of international law and also of our treaty obligations and criminal statutes. We had our scandals in the Bush years. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the attitude, uh, at least on financial conflicts of interest of the president, obstruction of justice issues, the types of things that brought down uh, President Trump, the, uh, the attitude was really quite different. Uh, if there was a criminal statute, and uh, I heard there was a violation, I reported it to the Department of Justice. Uh, the Department of Justice would not allow the White House to interfere in particular criminal prosecutions, the way Bill Barr did. Uh, when someone violated the Hatch Act, the way Kellyanne Conway did, uh, shilling for uh, candidates on the White House lawn, that person would be fired. Uh, so... I, I certainly wouldn't say that the Bush administration across the board complied with the with the law and the ethics rules. There were some serious breaches, uh, but uh, the persistent problems that we saw under Donald Trump uh, and the rhetoric, the, the rhetoric we saw under Donald Trump was certainly not there. Uh, things happened in the Bush years that should not have happened in the war on terror. But George W. Bush made it clear that the war on terror was not a war in Islam and did not want to single out Muslims uh, in his rhetoric. Uh, uh, George W. Bush was a welcoming president for all Americans. Whether you agree with what he did or not is a different question. Um, the policies I disagree with in the Bush administration. But with Donald Trump and the people working for him, it was attack after attack after attack uh, on uh, ethnic groups, on uh, political opponents, attacks on the media, on the press. Uh, this is very reminiscent of what ended up happening in Germany in the 19th, early 1930s as the country descended into fascism. It is extremely dangerous when you have alliances of the, a religious right in place along with an authoritarian uh, president who is attacking the press and attacking religious and ethnic minorities. Uh, and that's what we saw in the Trump years, a very dangerous situation. Let's not forget citizens of this country that he had issues with, particularly myself and others, where he would come after us using whether it's his social media platforms, whether it was using White House staff like Bill Barr, who retaliated against me and had me remanded back to prison because I wouldn't waive my First Amendment constitutional right and agreed not to publish my book, Disloyal. 
I mean, how would you have handled something like that other than walking out? You know, walking out of the White House is always an easy thing to do. And many people did it. People who I asked to join the White House, and I give them a lot of credit for being able to leave such a high-powered job because they just fundamentally disagreed with Donald. And so they left. But then somebody else comes in, a Donald 2.0, a Donald 3.0, or a Donald wannabe like a Josh Hawley or a Mark Meadows. They come in, and they're clearly much worse than the individual that left because they have no ethics. They have no scruples or morals. What do you do? Well, I think you have to, in this position, lay out very clearly what's wrong in writing. Uh, we did last summer uh, the project I worked on with the Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law at the University of Pennsylvania and Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington crew. We wrote a 250-page report of what was going on in the Department of Justice. And if you look at the executive summary of that report, uh, it's just a couple of pages long there, that we, we lay out in the executive summary a complete breakdown of the rule of law. I would have taken at least that material, put that in a memo, sent that to the president of the United States, send that to Congress, to the United States House of Representatives, uh, the Judiciary Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee, and let them know that we have a complete breakdown of the rule of law in the Justice Department, because that's what we have with uh, with uh, Attorney General Barr. Uh, he was basically operating as an arm of the Trump campaign uh, throughout his time as Attorney General, whether it was attacking you and retaliating against you because you had testified against Donald Trump and published your book, whether it was taking the Mueller report, redacting large parts of the Mueller report, the public view, lying about the Mueller report uh, to Congress, refusing to honor congressional subpoenas, asking uh, Speaker Pelosi, wear your handcuffs, uh, as if it's some sort of a joke. It just went on and on and on. Uh, it's a complete breakdown of the rule of law. I would want to make that message very clear, and I wish someone in the White House had been willing to do that, to stand up to this president. Yeah, well, lying to Congress as he did in his affidavits to both the House and Senate Select Committees on Intelligence when responding to their interrogatories. But, Richard, let me ask you this. Widespread protests have broken out once again in Minneapolis after the killing now of Dante Wright. And you recently tweeted about a controversial emergency assistance plan that has the University of Minnesota campus police, where you are a law professor, being deployed to other places in the city to aid in riot control. Now, understandably, there's been general condemnation of the plan. In response to that, you tweeted, this is nuts. UMPD officers are deployed to confront protesters 14 miles away from campus. Then National Guard soldiers take up positions adjacent to campus. Who's in charge here? Apparently nobody. Discuss with me what's happening and what the mood is on the ground. Is it similar to what broke out in the wake of George Floyd's murder? Well, this is uh, on top of the George Floyd's murder. We have the trial, criminal trial going on right now of Officer Chauvin in connection with the George Floyd murder. Uh, and uh, during the trial, we have yet another uh, a black man uh, killed uh, by a police officer. Uh, every fact, the facts are different in every case. But uh, uh, if you look at the videotape of what happened, it's really quite shocking. Uh, the, here you have an officer who says that she must, mistook her gun for a taser. 
uh, it just makes absolutely no sense what happened. And so, yes, we're going to have a, a, a public unrest over this. Uh, and this is a problem we need to resolve. And I also point out on Twitter that we've had prior shootings in Minnesota, and to, including in 2016 in Falcon Heights. Philando Castile was killed. And if members of the city council actually knew about racial profiling by the police, have admitted it on the record in a 2016 meeting of the city council in Falcon Heights, nobody investigated that. I don't know who in Minneapolis knew, in the city council and elsewhere in the government, uh, that there was a racial profiling going on by the police and what, what the issues were. Uh, now we have this in Brooklyn Center, which is uh, right north of Minneapolis. Uh, it happens again and again. It's happening around the country. Minnesota is not unique in this. But we need to get to the politicians who are supposed to be in charge of City Hall and the politicians in charge of the, and the city councils. And what do they know? about racial profiling. A lot of them just want to kowtow to the police union. Uh, with respect to the University of Minnesota police, uh, my view is they ought to protect our campus and the areas around our campus, and it makes no sense to send them 14 miles away to deal with riot control and get into all sorts of issues with civil liberties, with protesters. We've had peaceful protesters get arrested. We don't need the campus police doing that. We need the campus police protecting our campus, keeping and our faculty, our students, our staff uh, closer to home. So I, I thought that that plan made absolutely no sense for, for our uh, university place to get in the middle of that mess. Yeah, I totally I don't think that they're actually prepared in order to handle riot patrol. I mean, I think there's specific divisions in the police force that deal with, you know, rioting situations. So, But as I watched this unfold with Dante Wright and then the comparison with George Floyd, I don't believe that the officer intended on killing him. I, I don't believe that it was premeditated. I don't believe it was racially biased. However, at the end of the day, you have another dead young man. You have another dead young black man. And there comes a point in time that I think it t it's going to take something much bigger. And I don't know what could be bigger than seeing on television all of the various different behaviors that are going on towards the minority community. You know, something I learned the other day, and I was absolutely blown away and shocked by it. It turns out that this Lieutenant Rosario, who was pulled over because the officers did not notice that he had a paper license plate in this vehicle, which was a brand new car that they, I mean, I watched the, the body cam onto it, and I find it absolutely appalling. The man is in military uniform and they felt that they had the right before even really speaking to the guy to pepper spray him in the eyes, right? And it turns out that he is the nephew of Eric Garner. And I couldn't believe what's going on here. This poor family, right? To have to go through so much, um, between loss and between just the absolute disrespect, you're pulling somebody over because they're missing a license plate. How about just straight up and say to them, excuse me, sir, I'm sorry, we pulled you over. You're missing a license plate. Oh, no, uh, officer, it's there. It's a, a paper plate. I just got the car. That would have avoided the entire nonsense, not to mention the guy's in military uniform. 
I mean, this is a man that's serving the country to protect the country from foreign sources as well as from now national you know, discourse that we have going on. And you think you have the right as a police officer or anybody to pepper spray the guy in the face? I'm trying to figure out what could we do from a bigger, a bigger perspective in terms of overall policing strategies and so on. Because to me, regardless of the fact that I don't believe that she went out intending on killing uh, Dante Wright, the result is still the same. The result is still the same. There's a family in grief as a result of somebody else's mishandling of a situation. Yes, it's very tragic. And and the officer has been charged with negligent homicide. We'll see based on the facts. There are any additional charges. Uh, it's, It's really gross negligence. If you can't figure out the difference between the taser and the gun there. Uh, but you do get into the issue of um, whether it's subconscious or what's going on with the so-called racial profile. And the number of blacks who get pulled over is extraordinarily high. Uh, a disproportionate number of blacks are pulled over, not only in Minnesota, but in many other states. Uh, and uh, the reactions of police officers at, at, at the spur of the moment may very well be different because we have more African-Americans who certainly are dying disproportionately a lot more African-Americans than whites with the police shootings of unarmed uh, civilians. It's a serious problem. And this is where I get to the politicians and who is in charge uh, and the city councils and why it's so shocking if you have people who know about racial profiling or doing anything about it. The other problem is the police unions are extremely powerful. Uh, we have a police union in Minnesota that was very pro-Trump. It was dis- distributing cops for Trump T-shirts two years ago. This is before the George Floyd uh, murder. Cops for Trump T-shirts, very right wing. But guess what? The Democratic Party politicians would kowtow to them, too, because you don't want to mess with a union if you're a Democrat. So they had both the right and the left nailed down. You couldn't mess with a police union uh, in Minneapolis police union. These problems are in many cities, goes back to New York. I used to live in New York, practice law, I'm still a member of the Bar of New York, and lived there in the late 80s, early 90s. And I saw Rudy Giuliani get elected mayor, and uh, he started off, uh, looked pretty good with a law and order campaign and make, clean up taxi cabs and clean up Times Square and the rest of it. But by the end of his term, his relations with the African-American community over in Brooklyn and Queens, a number of places around the city were pretty poor. And I think there's a reason for that is that these problems were known and uh, Mayor Giuliani just didn't want to didn't want to deal with it. And he just come back with very combative rhetoric, which is, of course, something that's escalated with with Rudy in recent years as he hooked up with Donald Trump. Um, so this is a problem going way back with police brutality. And we got to deal with it. Racial profiling. There are a lot of good police officers out there I want to emphasize. Uh, and we want to support them. But we need to. Get the people out of the force who don't have good judgment uh, and who aren't really prepared for the job. And we do need to deal with implicit bias, racial profiling, and the rest of it. It's a serious problem. And I agree with you 100 percent. And I, too, want to state I am pro-police. However, I still believe that you're right. There's racial profiling, the number of stops uh, on the African-American, on the black, on the brown uh, community is substantially greater, not just Minneapolis and New York, but in every single state. And I think that they have to have some sort of a universal type of racial profiling program 
so that issues or things like what happened to Dante Wright should never happen to anybody. And should, it should never have happened to Dante Wright. It certainly should never have happened to George Floyd. It certainly should never have happened to Eric Garner. I mean, these are senseless losses of life over what? A traffic stop, a selling of a ticket, a fake $20 bill. Come on. I mean, at some point in time, we have to wake up as a global community. It's regardless of your color of your skin, you have to turn around and say, this is beyond stupid at this point. Right. I mean, if you just take these three, a counterfeit bill should cost somebody their life. Right. Or, you know, a traffic stop or, you know, I mean, just I, I, I truly don't understand it. I do hope that under this administration that somebody puts together a proper racial profiling program so that it makes no difference if you get stopped, if you're black or white. It, sh- it should make absolutely no different uh, difference. But Richard, as part of your advocacy work for crew, that's something that you mentioned before, you're suing the DOJ for meeting records between former Attorney General Bill Barr and Eric Prince. First of all, tell everybody what crew is, and then what are you looking to uncover based upon this? I guess it must be a FOIA request. Well, yes, and I am uh, I am no longer uh, the uh, vice chair of crew. I've worked with them since I, I was vice chair in 2017 uh, through 18, and then went back on the board of directors in 2019. I'm no longer director of crew, so I don't want to speak on behalf of crew uh, about that particular uh, request. Attorney General Barr, uh, as we pointed out in the report that I worked on uh, with the Center for Ethics and Rural Law at the University of Pennsylvania, and Crew was involved in the report as well, uh, Attorney General Barr had his uh, uh, fingers in just about every political situation imaginable to try to help Donald Trump. And the princes are very support, uh, very strong supporters of President Trump. And uh, I, I believe there are communications back and forth there that may very well uh, have involved uh, the Justice Department intervening in some cases with political motives. Uh, We aren't going to know until the documents are uncovered what happened. Uh, The Trump administration uh, has been very reticent, was very reticent to share uh, information about such things. What Crew is hoping is that the Biden administration will turn some of this information over, uh, whether it's about uh, Eric Prince and the bar or a lot of other information. We still want to see the unredacted Mueller report in the public view. We still don't have that. Um, it, it, the testimony, Dom, again, the White House counsel, the list goes on and on. It's not certain that the Biden administration is going to turn all, it all over. Uh, presidents do tend to protect the confidential information, uh, executive privilege, and so forth of previous presidents, even though I don't believe these documents are covered by the executive privilege. So we're going to see how much the Biden administration chooses to fight to keep confidential, uh, privileged, supposedly privileged documents from the Trump years. I'm hoping that the Biden administration will take a middle ground here. They they aren't going to throw everything out to the public, but at least uh, uh, material uh, that uh, is in the public interest to know where there is a a potential that there could have been a crime being committed or obstruction of justice, subversion of the Justice Department, which is a serious problem under Bill Barr. We, We, the public, have a right to know what was going on in our Justice Department. 
this is the um, the premier uh, law enforcement agency of the United States. There's extraordinary power in the Justice Department. And I believe that people have the right to know what was going on. I'm hoping the Biden administration will choose instead of fighting these requests to release at least some of, if not all of the documents. Yeah, I'm trying for the same thing as you are, except for my case. I want to I want to get documentation that shows Bill Barr communicating with Donald Trump and then all the way down to this Adam Pakula and to this Patrick McFarland Um I want I want to see those documents to see whether or not this was pre-planned, which is what I was told it was, that prior to my even going down to 500 Pearl Street, that they knew I was going to be taken into custody and that it came straight from the top. Both Trump and Bill Barr knew about it. I have put in FOIA requests. I have gotten 56 pages from the FOIA office, from the Bureau of Prisons. Not one single piece of paper has anything to do with my FOIA request. They may have sent me your, you know, your, your high school, you know, um, grades from your, you know, from seventh, eighth, you know, from ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade. Because there's not one piece of paper there that is responsive to my FOIA request. And I, I too hope that the Biden administration takes this seriously because. They violated not they violated many, many laws and they should be held responsible for it. Hi, folks, Michael Cohen here, and we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, the Jordan Harbinger show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. On Feedback Friday, Jordan helps you prepare for a successful polyamorous relationship should you be in the mood. And finally, there's a crazy interview from last Tuesday with David Kilger about forced organ harvesting. It's not just an urban legend. People are waking up without a kidney. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out last week's interview with action sports legend and MTV star Rob Drydick. I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and listen to the December 3rd, 2020 episode with Russell Brand, who discussed addiction and the brain. I never realized how smart the guy actually was. It's really a great episode. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. But I do want to ask you this, Richard. Mitch McConnell recently called statehood for D.C. a power grab. But to the 700,000-plus citizens equal to the state of Montana or Wyoming, it's the epitome of representation. 
Can you discuss this with me and my listeners? Well, I think that this is about trying to deny the District of Columbia voting rights because uh, a lot of the people in the District of Columbia uh, vote Democratic. And it's no surprise that a substantial number of residents of the District of Columbia are African-American. The Republican Party used to have a very strong uh, following among African-Americans. Uh, but uh, starting in the uh, Goldwater and Nixon era, uh, and then later under Reagan, and, and finally under Trump, we've just had fewer and fewer African Americans want to support the Republican Party because the Republican Party uh, deviated from its initial uh, commitment after the Civil War uh, to voting rights and to uh, civil rights for African Americans. And this has been very tragic. Uh, if you go back and look at the Voting Rights Act, you had a higher percentage of Republicans supporting it than Democrats in the 1960s. But uh, that's turned around. So it's all about race and politics, the whole thing about D.C. Mitch McConnell looks at that and he says there's going to be two more Democratic senators because the Republican Party doesn't stand a chance in D.C. Why doesn't the Republican Party stand a chance in D.C.? A lot of it is the racist rhetoric of people like Donald Trump. Uh, so it's circular. Uh, but at the end of the day, people shouldn't be denied voting rights because they're African-American. Well, that's right there in the 15th Amendment of the United States Constitution. And second, simply because they're going to vote for Democrats. And so there needs to be voting rights for the District of Columbia, whether they're a state and get two senators or, you know, how that's going to be worked out. We'll see. But the, the existing situation is unacceptable. Yeah, it's I, again, it's just another part of this whole gerrymandering in order to figure out how your party can win. I mean, look, we know, for example, Alabama is a red state. So now would it be right for the Democrats to try to come up with some type of legislation that would impede on Alabama's rights um, of their citizens to vote simply because, you know, that everybody knows that they're going to go red? I mean, the whole thing to me is ridiculous. Whoever the candidate is, Whoever, whichever party it is that you choose to vote for, that should be each and every citizen's right to vote for whoever they want. And if there's a preponderance of people like in New York or California that are Democrat um, or vote Democrat, so be it. I mean, that's just it's that's just I, I, I again, I get so tongue tied based on the stupidity of government. Let people have the right to vote. They don't have to figure out how to put you into a box so that they could basically control your vote. Okay, no problem. You're, you're a Democrat. You're in New York. You should live in this specific area because we're going to change the we're going to change the streets, the gerrymandering for which area is going to be ca- uh, considered Republican versus Democrat. And if we play with the numbers enough this way, then we'll be able to actually compete. I mean, that's not the way the process was designed, and yet somehow or another, that's where we have fallen to. But recently. The CEOs of General Motors and Ford, two of America's largest corporations, signed a petition with 38 other business leaders to Michigan lawmakers saying that any changes to voting laws should not restrict people from casting ballots, especially historically disenfranchised community. Now, having corporate leaders out in front of civil rights initiatives seems to be something that's very new. 
Is this genuine advocacy from businesses truly concerned with social change? Or you think it's just good business considering a majority of their own employees are actually minorities? If you can, unpack this for me in terms of corporate advocacy. Well, I think it's both. And right now what we're talking about is not social change for the better. It's regression toward the days of discrimination at the ballot box. A number of states moving backwards, using voter ID laws, other restrictions on voting to try and reduce uh, the number of minorities who are voting to skew elections in their favor. So we are not right now in an era of social progress on voting rights. We may achieve some progress if Congress passes H.R. 1, the reform bill that went through the House of Representatives and is apparently going to get filibustered in the Senate unless we can break that filibuster. Uh, But what's going on in Michigan, what happened in Georgia and some other states is reactionary, regression. And it's discriminatory. And I believe these corporate CEOs recognize that uh, discrimination, racism is bad for business. Uh, And uh, these are customers you're talking about. These are your employees you're talking about. And uh, the auto industry has come a long way, I will have to say, uh, since the days of Henry Ford, who was the owner of the Ford Motor Company famous for his Model T, but also famous for his uh, violent anti-Semitism, his uh, publication of the uh, newspaper up there in Dearborn uh, with all sorts of horrible anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So the auto industry doesn't have necessarily a proud history of standing up to racism, bigotry. Uh, But right now, in this political environment, uh, the big auto companies... And a number of other big uh, companies, the CEOs, have stepped forward to do the right thing. Uh, and I noticed uh, you mentioned at the beginning of our interview this uh, issue of diversity of, board of boards of directors, getting more women and uh, African-Americans and others on boards of directors. The National Association of Securities Dealers, the NASDAQ Exchange, has now promulgated a rule that I've defended uh, publicly uh, that would um, require companies to add at least one woman or one member of a minority or explain why they can't uh, if they're going to be listed on the NASDAQ. So uh, corporate America is very slowly moving toward embracing uh, at least some measures of diversity and at least willing to stand up to restrictions on the fundamental right to vote. You know, I, it's funny because I saw that about the boards and so on. To me... I don't particularly care if a board is filled with all male or all female. I don't care if they're black, they're white, they're brown. I don't care. I just want the board to be the best board that they can possibly be. Now, I do take offense to when it's a, we'll call it an all-white male board, simply because it's the old boys network. That I do have a problem with, where they discriminate against somebody coming onto the board because of their race, their religion, their creed, their color, their, you know, their gender. That should not happen. But I would think that in the 21st century, right, we're in 2021, I can't understand why they wouldn't want to have a female 
or a black female or a black male or a, an Asian or a brown male, female. It, I don't understand why they wouldn't be searching for the best of the best. I mean, think about even in your law school. You want the best professors to be teaching. That's how you elevate the law school. You don't want every single person, right, to be homogenous, right, in terms of ideology, in terms of the way they look. I mean, that old boys network should really be long over with. And you would think in 2021 that it is over with. But I guess it's not, is it? No, uh, it's unfortunately not. And the uh, statistics uh, with boards of directors are very disappointing, as published in the New York Times. About 12.5% of uh, board representation is uh, people of color, but people of color is anybody but Caucasian. Uh, And uh, given that uh, uh, underrepresented minorities are actually uh, very close to half our population, uh, to only be 12.5% of boards of directors is quite shocking. Women are about 20% of boards of directors, 21%, and yet half our population. And this is 2021. This is not 1950. Uh, And so this is really quite shocking that you have a number of companies uh, that don't want to uh, diversify their board for whatever reason. Uh, And uh, there are a number of different approaches to this. But uh, when the statistical evidence there is so far out of whack with the available talent pool, uh, we're very out of law schools. We're really virtually putting out classes that are uh, many law schools, predominantly uh, majority female. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of very highly qualified African-Americans graduate from law school and other minorities that the corporate boardroom needs to diversify. And and this does open up this issue that I mentioned at the very beginning about so-called affinity fraud. You have a lot of people who are all alike, that think alike. The CEO is like them, belongs to the same country club. Uh, you know, maybe be the same religion and so forth. Uh, and what happens? They trust the CEO, and the CEO may be reporting fake numbers. Or the chief financial officer, fake numbers. Uh, if you have a little more diversity in there, where people with different perspectives uh, get used to having discussions with people with different perspectives online, uh, I, I think that could be very, very helpful for corporate governance. Uh, as it be, it's helpful in, in the administration. I'm, I'm glad to see that President Biden has a, a certainly a more um, ethnically diverse administration than President Trump did. Yes, and we're starting to see the same thing happen in Congress with elections, with your seeing greater diversity um, coming into Congress, which I think will be um, of tremendous help. But the other day I was sitting and I was talking to this guy. I'd like to say he's a friend, but he's really not. And we ended up in, of course, a political discussion because everybody feels that they want to take me on in this conversation. And they, we actually talked about this exact issue, which is about um, what's happening with diversification um, and the forcing of boards to take on uh, different individuals, male, um, females versus males, black versus white, and so on. And he didn't feel that it was right. He didn't think that it was fair. He liked the opinion that you want to go with whoever is the best. But what he failed to acknowledge is that they're not even looking to find the best. They're looking to find, as you appropriately stated, they're looking to find the same type of individual that they are, the same guy whose locker is next to his at the golf club that he belongs to. And they're not looking for different perspectives. But his argument back to me is, 
I'll accept the notion that there should be X number of blacks or browns in a certain boards or accepted to law schools or accepted to certain Ivy League colleges, et cetera, et cetera, when I start to see more whites on the football field or more Jews on the football field, that if we're going to create this diversification in the business world, we should have the same diversification in the sports world or in the entertainment business and so on. And I just thought it was, I don't know the right way to say it, the stupidest comment that anybody could make, right? Because it goes to my point, which I tried to explain to him. Yes, you're going to put Moshe, right, as a, as a defensive lineman, right, as opposed to, say, whoever, whoever else might be there in the NFL right now who's 320 pounds, 6'5", six 6'6", foot foot and is able to run the 40 in like four seconds, right? I mean, you, if you want to win a Super Bowl, you have to have the best of the best. So that's the same theory that I'm trying to talk about when it comes to, the, to business, but it's not as if, though, they didn't take Moshe because he's six foot five, six foot six, three hundred twenty pound lineman. It's just because that's not that's not his size, and he could not understand how I was trying to bring the comparison in. And I just thought it was a weak and a stupid argument. But it's an argument that sort of follows with the way the Trump ideology, the way Trumpism, sort of flowed. Yeah, let's see. The problem with the argument that he's making there, looking at, like at sports, is you have an objective measure in sports. You put people on the field, you can watch them play. Uh, and, um, you know, in baseball, we have statistics, and basketball, the number of baskets. And, you know, in football, it's a little trickier, but you can figure out who the good players are not watching the plays. Uh, there, there's definitely more of an objective criteria uh, there. Uh, whereas in the business world, uh, it's a lot of subjective. Of course, the company wants to meet certain earnings projections, but who gets it there? It's not just the CEO, it's the entire team, uh, including the board of directors. Uh, and so you say, well, just hire the best of the best. Who are the best? Now people start using subjective measures to determine who the best of the best are. And then racial or ethnic bias feeds into that. And we've been around the track on this before. In, in the period, uh, really all the way up through the 1970s, there were a lot of firms in New York that would not hire uh, Jewish people to be as partners, uh, certainly, or even associates at the law firms or the investment banks. Uh, a lot of them did. And, and the line they often use, well, if we could find someone who's qualified, we would, but we can't find anyone who's qualified. What did that mean? They, that meant they would hire people, qualified meant customer relationships. Customers were the clients they wanted, which were big corporations that at the time were run predominantly by Christians. Uh, it had nothing to do with merit, the ability to be a good lawyer, a good banker. As we saw in New York, plenty of, of non-WASP firms developed in the banking and the law business. They were very, very successful. So this measure of merit uh, that is used uh, particularly in the business world, to say, well, we're hiring the best of the best. Uh, at the end of the day, what may be happening in a lot of these uh, institutions is they're hiring people they feel comfortable with or comfortable in the social setting that they are um, uh, familiar with. So what we've seen is diversification in the business world based on religion. 
uh, we don't have those uh, problems anywhere near as much as we did in the 1950s and 60s. But diversification with respect to gender has been extremely slow with respect to bringing into the corporate boardroom uh, literally almost half of our population that is not Caucasian uh, or that is uh, Hispanic or Caucasian. You know, it, we have not brought into our um, uh, boardrooms uh, underrepresented minorities that are close to half of our population. There's something wrong here, particularly when the customer base and the employee base increasingly includes uh, 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 underrepresented minorities. So this is really the best answer we can have, and that's what the NASDAQ said. Look, we're not going to make you do it, but if you can, at least get one woman on your board of directors and one person from an underrepresented minority, someone who's not a white male, you know, you know, at least explain to your investors why you can't. And maybe you have a good story to tell, but at least tell it to the investors. Let the investors right. decide. Right. Well, my hope is that the guy that I was talking to was listening because your um, objectivity versus subjectivity uh, analysis was certainly more clear than I than I was to him because I got absolutely nowhere. So maybe hopefully he'll listen to the program and um, it'll set him a little bit straight on the proper path. But yesterday, well, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I yes. hope so. Right. Uh, yesterday, CNN dropped more salacious details in the sordid saga of guy who I absolutely, of course, despise and can't stand, Matt Gates. They, spotlight, um, they spotlighted how Gates attended these drug-soaked house parties in this gated community of Orlando with women that were provided by Joel Greenberg. Now, he vows to fight on to the end in the mold of Donald Trump. He wants to be Donald Trump 2.0 and just deny, 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 and then attack, which is, of course, the way Donald does it, taught to him by the famous Roy Cohn. If you can, discuss this with me. What's going on here? Well, it's one more politician who's been caught in disgusting sexual conduct, along with other corruption, uh, who is just going to retreat to his base uh, his political base, uh, in order to save his own skin. Uh, and that's Donald Trump's mantra every time he got caught in something that was wrong, is to just say it's a great big Democrat conspiracy theory and so forth, uh, attack Bob Mueller and the rest of it. And that's what we're seeing here with Gats. And he's going to go back to the far right wing and try and get them to support him. Uh, it's it's really quite unfortunate. We shouldn't have people like that in Congress. Uh, and it's, it's been going on for too long where they engage in all sorts of uh, a very abusive uh, conduct toward women in particular and also corrupt conduct. And then they want to pass. And their pass is supposedly based on ideology. If you with my ideology, you should ignore my behavior. Well, that's just not the way the world ought to work uh, if we want to have a government uh, where if people are responsible or, or good citizens in the United States House and Senate, and that ought to be the priority, not whether you agree with someone on everything. Well, I'm not expecting anybody to agree on everything, but how could anybody, male or female, black, white, brown, it would make no difference to me when you, when the information that was uncovered by the New York Times and then the Daily Beast is put forth to the American people they're paying through Venmo. This idiot puts in the memo, 
test, and then he puts the name of the girl in another one, and so on. I mean, it's as clear as day what he was doing, forgetting about the fact that he's denied, denied, denied the Donald Trump theory, right, on how to win a case. But he's actually trying to think he could take the offensive and still goes out and gets up onto a podium and speaks before a group of women in Florida on issues, on how the liberal left is trying to destroy him. No, Matt, what's destroying you is your own stupidity, your inability to keep your pants up, your inability to find a girl without actually having to pay for it. I mean, Matt Getz is the kind of guy that couldn't get laid in a morgue with a $100 bill. So he goes to Greenberg, and they set up this wackadoodle type of a scheme to do it through Venmo, which now has a paper trail. And yet there were still women that showed up to this, to this whatever he had, this speech that he was giving. Why would any woman in her right mind go and listen to this pervert speak about women's issues? Well, it's inexplicable. Except for we've seen it before, and we saw it with Donald Trump in 2016. We've all known his attitude toward women, his objectification of women, treating them as sex objects. We all know what happened after the Billy Bush tape was released uh, and the foul language that Donald Trump used there, and he just simply made it a political issue. He turned it on Hillary Clinton and accused her of, uh, of assisting her husband in his misdeeds. He brought to the debate of uh, various accusers of Bill Clinton. In other words, it's the old Roy Cohn method. Attack, attack, attack. When they've got you on something, you just turn around and attack them harder. And you come up with something else, even if it's completely made up. And so I'm not surprised that the man gets episode because we elected as president of the United States for four years. A man who had continuously talked about women in the most vulgar terms, including his own daughter, who he talked about, Donald Trump talked about, on the Howard Stern show, using really quite foul language, disgusting references. I don't want to go into it, but uh, this is just typical um, of what people are willing to put up with because they've got a politician who might agree with them on abortion or whatever it is, immigration, and they're willing to put up with people of such low character. And it's really very tragic for our country. You know, Richard, as we're beginning to sort of wind down into the hour, uh, I want to ask you this. Trump, in his Mar-a-Lago speech last weekend, continued his lies and stepped up his attacks on individuals like Mitch McConnell and those who wouldn't follow him off the cliff in overturning the election. How does the GOP move forward in a future where the base is beholden to MAGA and to Trump and to all of these crazies that just keep perpetuating over and over and over again the big lie? The Republican Party has to repudiate Donald Trump, not only Donald Trump himself, but Trumpism. Uh, it has to repudiate the racism of Stephen Miller people like Sebastian Gorka and others who are in the White House. So it isn't just about Donald Trump. It's about a movement, an extreme right movement, that has taken over the Republican Party. A lot of these people um, were not, didn't even vote 
a uh, number of years ago. Uh, they were not really involved in uh, political parties, uh, but Donald Trump's racism appealed to them. We have others who in the old days were uh, Dixocrats, very conservative Democrats, particularly down in the South, who had come over to the Republican Party uh, to fight civil rights and use the party of Abraham Lincoln to fight civil rights. Uh, we need to repudiate these people. Uh, and if the Republican Party can't do that, the Republican Party is going to cease to exist. There will be a market in politics for a party that really favors small government uh, and low taxation. Uh, but that's not going to be a party that favors rounding people up or immigrants, putting people in cages, sending troops into Portland, Oregon, uh, as Donald Trump and Bill Barr did in the summer of 2020 to go after imaginary um, uh, terrorists and Antifa and so forth. The, the party of small government is not the party who would beat up on peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square so Donald Trump would walk over to St. John's Church for that photo up. So um, the Republican Party has a lot of thinking to do about whether it wants to stick to its original principles uh, and jettison the extremists, the racists, the uh, uh, authoritarians, or whether they want to uh, devolve into a, a party that represents just that, the racism and authoritarianism. And we really do not need a far-right party in the United States. And we Americans are going to fight hard to make sure that what happened in Germany in the 1930s never happens in the United States. And the beginning of that process for us needs to be standing up to Trumpism because it could get a whole heck of a lot worse. Except right now, when we look at the numbers, 74 million Americans voted for Donald Trump in 2020, which is a greater number than his victory in 2016. Now, right now, Donald Trump has been muted, right? He's muted because of his suspension from Twitter, from Facebook, and from other social media, not to mention... The press isn't covering Captain Chaos the way they were doing because he's not the president anymore. Right now, he's just a lonely fat guy sitting in Mar-a-Lago, wolfing down Mar-a-Lago burgers and vanilla ice cream, trying to, you know, get his golf swing back. But how do we get these individuals back, these 74 million? And I don't care if these 74 million are diehard Republicans. How do you get them back to some sense of normalcy? How do we break them from like where I was living in the cult of Trumpism? How do we get them out of it? Yeah, I'd say a large percentage of those people voted for Trump, even in the second election, 2020, were not diehard supporters. They were just picking between the two. They are perhaps diehard Republicans. Uh, and they're willing to go with their party no matter what. Uh, you had a lot of Republicans who wanted someone other than Donald Trump to win the 2016 nomination. Uh, I hope there's going to be a real contested fight for the 2024 nomination. If Donald Trump is still around, that would be maybe uh, confined to Florida because there's a warrant out for him anywhere else, at least Florida. He could have some trouble. So we'll see whether Donald Trump is a viable candidate in 2024. But even if he is, I, I hope that other candidates step forward because I'll, it's, we do need to separate out the number of people who voted for Trump. And a lot of people voted for Trump who Trump was not their first choice and would have preferred a Mitt Romney and so forth, both in 2016 and 2020. 
um, from the really the hardcore, the types of people who showed up in Washington, D.C. on January 6th to start a riot and an insurrection. Uh, and that's a smaller minority of the Trump uh, supporters. So hopefully we're going to move uh, toward a political environment where the Republican Party wants to be viable, looking for another candidate, maybe going back to the Mitt Romney mold uh, or somebody else. Uh, so we can have a real election in 2024 between two people who might be different in many ways, but he would respect uh, and you'd, you'd be happy to have as president. And I certainly felt that way about Mitt Romney and Barack Obama or John McCain and Barack Obama, uh, George W. Bush and Al Gore, George W. Bush and John Kerry. I mean, these were good people uh, and you could choose one or choose the other. Uh, but um, uh, Donald Trump does not measure up. And I think this has been quite clear uh, from the way he handled his presidency, the way he's handled his personal life and his business life, which is now under investigation by the New York attorney general and the Manhattan District Attorney. Yes, which I'm very well aware of. And I can assure you, and I assure all of the listeners today, that Trump will not be running for the presidency in 2024. But this will be my last question to you. I saw the other day Nikki Haley, who everybody had such high regard for while she was working over with the United Nations, coming out and kissing the ring of Donald Trump, very much like the fools, the Republican fools like the Josh... Uh, the Josh Hawley's of the world. I don't understand what she could possibly be thinking to go there and to placate Trump when she knows and has to know, and if she doesn't, she should listen to this podcast, that Donald will not be running in 2024. The only thing he may be doing is exercising in the yard after he goes to prison or ends up on home confinement for the rest of his life. Why would she still go ahead and risk her political future, her name, her reputation, by going to kiss Donald's ass, right, um, publicly when she knows he has no chance and that day by day he's losing support even from his right-wing base? I think that she wants to get that right-wing base for herself. She probably knows that he is going to go down. He's not going to be there in 2024. And so this is a scramble for the Trumpian base. Uh, it's who, who's going to get that Trump base? Uh, and uh, the first person to speak out against Donald Trump is not going to get that base. He's just going to get attacked by Trump. So uh, what Nikki Haley is betting on is, well, if you kiss up to Trump and he'll say good things about you, then you're, number, you're option number two if he goes and gets himself indicted and up wearing an ankle bracelet, you know, that she's option number two. And I think that's what you want. So you could say that's um, that shrewd politics, but I'd say that it's cowardly. I think we we need people going to stand up uh, to authoritarianism, to racism. Uh, you need somebody who's going to say no to someone like Donald Trump and uh, with that kind of an ego. And, and we've seen it before in this country. We saw it under Joe McCarthy, uh, of course, who had Roy Cohen as his lawyer. Uh, Donald Trump's then became Donald Trump's lawyer. Uh, we saw Joe McCarthy, the way he would just go on the attack and the attack, the attack, uh, and abuse power. Uh, so we've, we've been around this track before. Uh, Richard Nixon had elements of this. He was not as bad as Trump. But you listen to some of those tapes that it's just violent anti-Semitism and the, just the desire to 
cover up things, obstruct justice, so obvious from the Nixon tapes. So we've been through it before, but we've stood up to it. At the end of the day, the Republican Party stood up to McCarthy. At the end of the day, another Republican senator stood up to Nixon to get him out of the White House. So it's time for courage. And that's my concern about Nikki Haley. Is she showing courage? Or is she just trying to kiss up to get those Trump voters to support her in case he goes down? Well, Richard, again, I want to thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Enlightening. I wish you all the best and um, hope to have you back on the program soon. Exactly. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. I think back to a year ago today, and I was still sitting inside a prison cell. In a matter of weeks, as the COVID virus raged inside federal prisons everywhere, I would be granted compassionate release and allowed to serve the rest of my time inside my own apartment with my family by my side. Many assumed that I was set free, but that is not the case. I merely traded my Otisville prison cell for a much nicer Park Avenue version. But in no way was I a free man, something that I would soon learn and that would lead to one of the most traumatic moments in my life. A few months into my home confinement, I was summoned to the federal courthouse. Expecting a quick visit, I brought my son Jake along for the ride. I told him I'd be right back. To my surprise, I was handed a document that I was told to sign, stating that I would have no engagement of any kind with the media, including print, TV, film, books, or any other form of media news. Prohibition from all social media platforms. It was a complete and total violation of my First Amendment rights. I did not want to sign this document for obvious reasons, and so I declined. In short order, I was rearrested and taken back to prison and left in solitary confinement for several weeks until my lawyer, the saintly Donya Perry, could arrange my release. That's what I'm reminded of when I think back a year ago today. How vulnerable I felt as an enemy of this president. He showed his teeth that day when Bill Barr, his personal fucking attack dog, stole my liberty in order to silence me. This wasn't just a few mean tweets from Trump or him calling me a loser during a press conference. This was the President of the United States weaponizing the Justice Department to keep me from talking and releasing my book, Disloyal. I still can't believe it happened. In many ways, it happened to a different person. That's how long ago it feels. But the scars are still there, and it really hurts. The trauma is still there. It's what the prominent psychologist Dr. William Parham calls invisible tattoos. Mine will never go away. It's just something you forget or try to erase. Part of me is grateful as I want to remember as much as possible in order to fuel my work. But I also hope to forget so that I can sleep at night and not wake up at 2 a.m. thinking that I'm back inside a cell with lights flashing in front of my eyes as if I'm standing in front of a train. I have been told it takes time. But I also wonder if that closure will only come once Donald Trump is finally gone. In the back of my mind, I keep wondering if I am 100% safe. Could he not reach me down once again if re-elected? These aren't wild, paranoid fears. It happened once before. Now we all need to prevent it from happening again. And thanks for listening. Hey, movie lovers, who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. 
No signups, no fees, no contracts, ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick, and executive producer Jared Gustad. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. Guys, we gotta put our trays up for takeoff. Where's Dad? Oh, he's in the back. We could only get three seats together. Daddy has my pillow. Okay, well, we'll get it later. Can you not put your feet up, please? Why aren't we going? I'm not sure, honey. We must be in line for takeoff. Like security? Well, that was a different line. I have to go. We just sat down. But I have to go. The seatbelt sign's on. Why aren't we moving? Hey, no kicking. We're just 15th in line for takeoff. Son of a... Don't go there. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.